Our speaker this afternoon is Kirkland and Ellis Professor at Harvard Law School, Michael Clareman, author of Framers Coop, The Making of the U.S. Constitution, which tells a story many of us would find surprising about the Constitution's drafting and ultimate ratification. Professor Clarman is one of our nation's and world's most authoritative scholar on the U.S. Constitution. He received his BA and MA in political theory from the University of Pennsylvania, his JD from Stanford Law School, and his doctorate in philosophy in legal history from the University of Oxford, where he was a Marshall Scholar. He also served as the James Monroe Distinguished Professor of Law and Professor of History at the University of Virginia Law School until 2008. A prolific writer, he's written several books in which he explores important legal and constitutional issues, including civil rights, same-sex marriage, and racial equality. Please join me in welcoming Professor Michael Clarman to the Boston Athenaeum. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for coming. Uh, it's always nice to have an opportunity to be on this side of the river. I get very excited when I get near Fenway Park, especially when it's only eight or nine days away from opening day. Uh, I'm going to talk to you about my book on the making of the Constitution. I thought I'd start by just making, um, offering three kind of explanations for why I thought the book was worth doing, and then I'll tell you about three different points that the book makes that I think tie together neatly. So there are three contributions that I see myself making in the book. First, there are a lot of books that have been written about parts of the story that contribute to the making of the Constitution. So I'm, I'm talking about the, the flaws in the Articles of Confederation, followed by the lead up to the Philadelphia Convention, then the convention where they wrote the Constitution, then the ratifying contest and the debate between Federalists and Anti-Federalists, and then finally, a couple years later, we get the Bill of Rights. They're terrific books written on parts of the story, but nobody's actually tried to tell the whole story between two covers, and that's one thing that I thought would be worth doing. Second, uh, I was able, partly because of the proliferation of these documentary histories in the last few years, which are now available online, I was able to go through really a massive amount of primary source material in a reasonably short period of time. So Madison's letters, diaries, newspaper accounts, all of that stuff has been assembled in one place and it's been digitized. That enables me to tell the story through the voices of the participants, and I thought that was a useful endeavor, both because it adds a certain vibrancy to the story and because I think it enables people to decide for themselves whether my interpretation is persuasive because I've given you most of the primary evidence that I'm relying on. And then third and finally, I'm trying to put a sharper edge on an interpretation that's been around for a very long time. Uh, that interpretation is seeing the Constitution as a kind of conservative counter-revolution against the forces of democracy and redistribution that were set in motion or accelerated by the Revolutionary War. I mostly agree with that count, account, but I've tried to, as I said, put a sharper edge on it, and I'll explain in my, talks, in my talk today where exactly I think I am adding something to that interpretation. All right, so that's why I wrote the book. I thought what I'd do in the rest of my time, and I'll talk for about 45 minutes, I thought I would uh, tell you about three points that are made in the book. 
So point number one actually has two subparts. I'm going to describe to you two ways in which the Constitution was different from what most Americans expected and probably wanted from the Philadelphia Convention. One of those two ways is the Constitution is much more nationalizing, meaning shifting power from the state and local level to the national level. And second, the Constitution is more democracy-constraining or anti-populist, and I'll use those as synonyms, democracy-constraining, anti-populist, than most Americans expected or probably wanted. Second point is, why did the Philadelphia Convention do those things? If those were not what most people were expecting and wanting, why did the Philadelphia Convention take those steps? And then third, and to me maybe most interestingly, how did you get the country to approve those things? It seems a little bit ironic in a reasonably democratic ratifying process that the people would approve a constitution, part of which was oriented toward constraining the influence of ordinary people on the national government. Now, I have to just explain, when I say a reasonably democratic process, that's not true from our perspective today. So African Americans were mostly enslaved. They were not participating, even if they were free blacks. In most states, they would not have been participating. Women were not participating in politics pretty much anywhere in the United States. Every state still had property qualifications for voting, so poor people who lacked sufficient real estate were not participating. Doesn't sound very democratic from our perspective today, but judged from a baseline of world history or comparisons to the rest of the world at that point in time, this is arguably the most democratic enterprise the world had ever seen. Literally hundreds of thousands of Americans are voting for ratifying convention delegates, of whom maybe there are between 1,000 and 2,000, who are going to express a verdict on whether the Constitution be, be approved or not. The world had never seen anything like that before. All right, so let me start with the first point. I'm going to briefly describe the nationalizing features of the Constitution, then I'll briefly describe the anti-populist features. First of all, Constitution gives the national government virtually unlimited taxing authority. Now that is, to be that is to be compared with the Articles of Confederation, which are what governed the country before the Constitution. The Articles of Confederation gave Congress no taxing power. All it had was the authority to impose requisitions, which were basically requests. So Congress could ask the states for money, but it had no coercive enforcement authority, which meant sometimes the states complied and often they didn't. Under the Articles, there had been a proposal for an amendment that would have conferred upon Congress a limited taxing authority in the form of impost duties, but that was rejected. So we've moved from no taxing authority to a proposal for a very limited taxing authority, which was rejected, to a virtually unlimited taxing authority, which is what the Constitution confers on the national legislature. Second. The Constitution confers upon Congress virtually unlimited military authority. Congress can raise an army, Congress can raise a navy, Congress can call state militias into federal service. Again, contrast that with the Articles of Confederation, where all Congress could do was requisition troops, which again is requesting that the states provide men to fight in the Revolutionary Army with no coercive authority to make them actually sign up. There were no provisions in the Constitution limiting 
the army that Congress could create. There was no provision saying it can, Congress can only raise an army during wartime. Congress can only raise an army of, say, 2,000 troops. If Congress wants to raise an army, it needs to do so by supermajority votes. None of those provisions limiting Congress's power in the Constitution. Some opponents of the Constitution proposed such limits on what they saw as the very dangerous and unlimited authority to raise an army even in peacetime, but none of those limits are in the Constitution. Third, Constitution gives Congress unlimited authority to regulate international and interstate commerce. There was no such power under the Articles of Confederation. Fourth, Congress has implied powers under the Constitution. The Necessary and Proper Clause, which it comes at the end of Article 1, Section 8, which is where Congress's powers are enumerated, the Necessary and Proper Clause says that in addition to these enumerated powers, like the power to tax and the power to raise armies and navies, Congress also has the authority to adopt all measures that are necessary and proper to implementing the enumerated powers. Now contrast that with the articles where Article 2 provided that Congress only had those powers explicitly delegated to it. Under the Constitution, by comparison, Congress is expressly given implied powers. Fifth, the Constitution supplies a mechanism for the enforcement of federal supremacy. So, for example, under the Articles of Confederation, Congress was clearly delegated the power to make treaties, but Congress had no mechanism for actually enforcing treaties upon resistant states. Madison, who as we'll see was the driving force in many ways behind the Constitution, Madison had a favored mechanism for enforcing federal supremacy. It was a national veto of state legislation. Madison proposed at the Philadelphia Convention that Congress be given the authority to veto any state law. Now that proposal was too nationalist, even for a very nationalist group of delegates, and in its place they substituted a three-part mechanism of enforcing federal supremacy. First, there would be an explicit grant of federal supremacy in the Supremacy Clause in Article 6. That clarifies that federal law, constitution, statute, common law, treaty, are superior to state law, and anything to the contrary in state law has to give way to federal law. Second, the Constitution creates a federal judiciary. Under the Articles of Confederation, there were no general jurisdiction federal courts, meaning most cases ended up in state court. The Constitution mandates the creation of a U.S. Supreme Court, and it authorizes but does not require that Congress create lower federal courts, the idea being that federal courts will be more reliable enforcers of federal supremacy than state courts that are beholden to state legislatures, both for their salary and their tenure in office. And third and finally, the Constitution supplies a substantive rule of federal law that did not exist under the Articles and was incredibly important to the founders. That's found in Article 1, Section 10, and it's not something that's widely known today. That provision bars states from passing debtor relief laws and enacting paper money laws. 
That is something that many states were doing in the 1780s during a time of severe economic contraction. A majority of states in the couple years before the Philadelphia Convention had passed debtor relief laws, had passed paper money laws in order to provide economic relief to thousands of farmers who otherwise would have gone bankrupt because they couldn't pay their debts and their taxes. Most of the framers in Philadelphia regarded such laws as officially sanctioned theft. You were basically redistributing property from creditors to debtors, and they didn't think that was the point of government. They thought the point of government was to protect property, not to redistribute it. So the framers wrote a substantive rule of law, empowered federal courts to enforce it, and under the Supremacy Clause, that federal rule would trump any state rule to the contrary. Turning to the anti-populist features of the Constitution, and this one I just mentioned is actually both. Article 1, Section 10 is both nationalizing, it provides a national rule of substantive law, but it's also very clearly an anti-populist mechanism. But in terms of other anti-populist or democracy-constraining mechanisms in the federal Constitution, first of all, very long terms in office as compared with the baseline of state constitution and Articles of Confederations. Under most state constitutions, both governors and legislators had to run for re-election every year, and under the Articles of Confederation, congressional delegates served one-year terms in office. As you know, under the Constitution, representatives serve two years, presidents serve four years, senators serve six years. Now, one thing that I find especially striking is that the delegates in Philadelphia mostly wanted to go even further in terms of extending the tenure in office of federal office holders. At the convention, four state delegations, not individual delegates, but four of the 13, well, one state wasn't represented, Rhode Island didn't sound delegates, four of the 12 state delegations actually favored lifetime tenure for the president. Many delegates favored much longer terms in office for senators. Madison favored nine-year terms. Some representatives suggest, and some delegates in Philadelphia suggested 13 or 15-year terms. Alexander Hamilton actually thought both the president and the Senate needed to be tenured for life because that was the only way in a representative form of government that you could adequately protect property rights only by creating that much stability within the system. Framers also preferred indirect elections for senators and presidents. Under the original Constitution, senators are not directly elected. They are elected by state legislatures. That only changed with the 17th Amendment, which was ratified in 1913. Under the Constitution, and still true today, presidents are not directly elected. They are selected by presidential electors who are chosen in a method specified by state legislatures and which many, if not most of the framers anticipated, would be simply the state legislature choosing the presidential electors rather than turning them over to popular election. Now, the reason why they preferred that the president not be directly elected was because they had significant distrust of the capacity of the people to perform that function wisely. George Mason, who was a leading delegate from Virginia at the convention, said in the context of opposing direct election of the president, 
quote, it would be as unnatural to refer the choice of a proper character for chief magistrate, president, to the people as it would be to refer a trial of colors to a blind man. Right? Think about running for office sometime on that platform. Right? Probably not the way to get elected. Third, uh, the framers insulated even the House of Representatives to the extent they could from direct popular influence. Now, obviously, the House will be the most democratic branch. The people directly elect representatives, and they serve only two-year terms in office. But it's striking when you look carefully at the Constitution how much they were trying to undermine the populist connection between the people and their representatives. First, and maybe most importantly, they created a very small House of Representatives, which meant that individual con congressional representatives would represent very large populations over very broad geographic Areas. Now, the point of that was twofold from the perspective of the framers. First, the larger the geographic area, the smaller the number of people in the House, the more likely that the great men of the community, the best and the brightest, they referred to them, quote unquote, as the better sort, would be elected to office. And in addition, the larger the geographic constituency and the larger the number of constituents, the more distance there would be, both physical and uh, metaphorical, between a representative and that representative's constituents. They wanted to open up as much slack in the relationship between representatives as constituents as possible, which would liberate representatives to perhaps dilute or even ignore the will of their constituents. The original House had 65 representatives. Compare that, for example, to the lower House of the Massachusetts Legislature, which had over 300 delegates in 1787. So 65 for the entire country, over 300 for the Massachusetts legislature. The average Massachusetts legislator represented about 1,400 people. The first members of Congress represented about 30 or 40,000 people. That's more than 20 times as many. If it's helpful to have a modern benchmark, congressional representatives today, I think, represent about 700,000 people. So obviously, the distance between them and the people and the representatives has become even greater. In addition, the Constitution omits, very intentionally, several democracy-enhancing provisions for representatives. So under the Articles of Confederation and under many state constitutions, there were provision for instruction, recall, and mandatory rotation in office. And I'll explain all of those in a second. The Constitution leaves all of those out. Instruction is what enabled a Massachusetts town meeting to instruct its representative in the Massachusetts legislature, perhaps on an issue like whether to declare independence from Great Britain, whether to support a new state constitution, even whether to raise taxes. If a representative defied instructions, that representative would be under a moral obligation to resign his office. Constitution leaves that out. Recall, under the Articles of Confederation, representatives in Congress, even though they only serve a one-year term, can be recalled during that term if their state legislatures, who are the ones appointing them to office, don't like the job they're doing in the national capital. 
Mandatory rotation is just what you think it is. It's term limits. Under most state constitutions, there were term limits. So Thomas Jefferson could serve three consecutive annual terms as governor of Virginia, but after that he would be rotated out of office. Constitution contains no mandatory rotation for House members, for senators, or for presidents. The purpose of these democracy-enhancing provisions is to give people more direct control over their representatives. The point of leaving these out of the Constitution was to minimize the connection between constituents and their representatives. Really, the purpose here was twofold. They wanted to prevent Congress from ever enacting the sort of debtor relief and paper money laws that the state legislatures had been adopting in the mid-1780s, and they wanted to empower Congress if the states went on passing those laws despite Article I, Section 10's prohibition, they wanted the national government to strike those laws down. Okay, so that's the first part of my talk. Now I want to explain how the Philadelphia Convention managed to write this sort of constitution. One leading contemporary critic of the constitution, and we call these people anti-federalists, said, and I think this is accurate, that, quote, the democratic and aristocratic parts of the community were disproportionately represented in Philadelphia. In other words, a skeptical anti-federalist said the aristocratic types dominated the Philadelphia Convention. Why? Why would they be a larger proportion of the delegates in Philadelphia than they were of the population at large? So this is one of the places where I'm trying to put a sharper edge on the traditional interpretation. I'm going to offer you five or six discrete points, which I hope together add up to a conceitedly speculative explanation of why the Philadelphia Convention was perhaps unrepresentative of the median voter, the person in the United States who was kind of in the middle of the political spectrum. First, State legislatures generally were the ones selecting delegates to attend the Philadelphia Convention. How did they choose delegates? Well, this is not true in all states, but in most states, and definitely, for example, in Virginia, they just chose their most famous citizens. So the Virginia legislature sends seven of its most, or it selects seven of its most eminent citizens as its representatives at the Philadelphia Convention. George Washington, George Mason, James Madison, they designated Patrick Henry, but he actually declined to go, as I'll talk a little bit more about later. Now, by picking their most eminent citizens, which seems like a natural thing to do, they were probably biasing the pool of de delegates in favor of nationalism and uh, a desire to constrain populist influence. How do you become one of the most eminent citizens in your state? Well, in 1787, largely through national service, most of them served in the military, in the Revolutionary Army. Most of them also served in the Confederation Congress. Both of those are very nationalizing experiences. So let me just say a word about serving in the Revolutionary Army. That was a profoundly nationalizing experience, I think largely for two reasons. One is you were fighting to create a nation. And second, many soldiers regarded the states as being hindrances to success in the Revolutionary War because the states often were not very generous about contributing money and troops. So biographers of Washington and Marshall, in trying to explain their nationalist bent, 
point to their Revolutionary War experience. I'm referring to John Marshall, the great Chief Justice, George Washington, obviously the first president. Where their nationalism come from? Well, at least partly from their military service. In addition, the most eminent citizens are obviously more likely to be wealthy, well-educated. That's how you acquire reputations, uh, large reputations, your large landowner. It turns out there's a strong correlation between those characteristics and being presumptively skeptical of whether populist influence on government is a good thing. So simply by virtue of picking your most eminent citizens, you're probably biasing the pool in favor of nationalism and anti-populism. Second point. Opponents of this enterprise, people who wanted to preserve the power of the states, people who wanted to preserve more direct democracy, they had no reason to mobilize in opposition to what was going on in Philadelphia because they had no reason to know what would happen in Philadelphia. It turns out the agenda of the convention was mostly contained in the mind of James Madison. It's not because Madison was especially eminent figure. He's very young. He's 36, 37 years old. He's certainly not the most eminent figure in Virginia politics, much less in national politics. But Madison, uniquely to the 55 delegates who at one point or another attended the Philadelphia Convention, Madison prepared in advance meticulously. He did a study of the flaws in the articles, the flaws in state constitutions. He looked at the history of modern and ancient confederacies. He diagnosed what he thought were the problems in existing forms of government, and he proposed solutions. He then asked his Virginia colleagues to come early to Philadelphia. They coordinated around a plan. They met with the Pennsylvania delegates, conveniently all of whom lived in Philadelphia. And the two largest states produced a draft document which was submitted on the first day of the convention. It was called the Virginia Plan. And it laid out a very nationalist and democracy-constraining framework. Now, of course, Madison didn't win on everything that he cared about. Indeed, it's interesting, Madison left the convention depressed because he thought he'd lost on too many issues of great significance. But obviously, where you end up depends a lot on where you start. And they started with the Virginia plan, and that was a profoundly nationalizing and democracy-constraining proposal. Third, some appointed delegates they were appointed by their legislatures. And here I'm talking about people like Patrick Henry of Virginia, Richard Henry Lee of Virginia, Samuel Chase of Maryland. They turned down their appointments. And then after the Constitution was proposed, they became leading critics, leading anti-federalists. Now, it's hard to know why these people didn't go to Philadelphia. It's a fairly small group. It's dangerous to generalize from a small sample size. But here's a bit of speculation, which I think is plausible, though I concede is speculative. Maybe these people didn't go to Philadelphia because they weren't very interested in what they thought would happen, which was a mildly nationalizing framework, giving Congress a limited taxing power, giving Congress a commerce power. They weren't that interested in that enterprise, and they never dreamed that on the agenda would be a radical reform set of proposals. If they'd known that was what was going to happen in Philadelphia, maybe they would have gone to resist it. 
They actually did rally in opposition to it once it came out of the convention. And if they'd gone and they'd been there, maybe they could have put up a fight against it. Fourth and relatedly, there, were a there was a decision made by several delegates who did go to Philadelphia who were aghast at the nationalizing, democracy-constraining efforts of the convention. There was a decision to leave early. So now we're talking about people like John Lansing and Robert Yates of New York. We're talking about Luther Martin of Maryland. These people also became leading anti-federalists. They made a dubious choice, not a crazy choice, but a dubious choice, in order not to confer legitimacy on the convention, which they thought was acting in an illegitimate way, they walked out. Now, if they'd stayed and fought, maybe they could have gotten something closer to their preferences. Instead, they decided, let's try to delegitimize the enterprise. In retrospect, they might have made a mistake. Lansing and Yates, by the way, controlled the New York delegate, delegation. New York only had three delegates, the other most famously being Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton was by far the most nationalist and anti-populist delegate in Philadelphia. When Yates and Lansing left, they simply disqualified New York from having a vote because under the existing rules, you had to have two delegates for a state's vote to count which is why Hamilton actually left the convention right after Lates and Yancing, and then he came back at the end because he wanted to sign his name to the document and be present at the creation. Fifth, the delegates made a critical decision to close the doors of the Philadelphia Convention. Now, that's in contrast to the ratifying conventions, all of which were open to the public. Madison said later that he thought if they hadn't closed the doors, they probably wouldn't have gotten a constitution. And they had some plausible reasons for closing the doors. That means keeping the newspaper reporters and the public out of the galleries. However, there were two significant effects to this. One is delegates in Philadelphia were liberated to take the most extreme positions that they would have refrained from taking had they worried about this harming their reputations because the newspapers would have reported these speeches that they gave. So it liberated them to be more nationalist, more anti-populist, which they probably would not have been willing to do if newspaper reporters were writing down their speeches, would have jeopardized their future political careers. In addition, and maybe more importantly, by keeping the doors closed, and they were meeting for almost four months, they deprived anti-federalists of those four months in which they could have started organizing opposition. And in an era of very poor transportation and communication, it was very difficult to organize, especially around rural areas of the countryside, and the anti-federalists really could have used those four months back, but they didn't have them because nobody knew what the Philadelphia Convention was doing until they opened their doors on September 17th and promulgated a constitution. Sixth and finally, the delegates made the momentous choice to go for broke. Before the convention, Madison was corresponding with his friends like George Washington, and they were pleasantly surprised to discover that they actually agreed that it would be a bad idea to pursue what they called temporizing expedience. Rather, they wanted radical reform. They thought this was the last best opportunity to get the form of government they considered ideal, and they needed to take advantage of that opportunity. Randolph, the governor of Virginia, who represented the Virginia delegation, on the first day of the convention, or the second day in which they were having substantive deliberations, he unveiled the Virginia plan, 
And when he did, he said the following, according to James Madison's notes, which are our best record of what happened in Philadelphia. Quote, he, Randolph, would not, as far as depended on him, leave anything that seemed necessary undone. The present moment is favorable and is probably the last that will offer. So they decided to go for it, and I think that's pretty important because they actually managed to win this battle. And if they hadn't gone for it, you would have gotten something much less a departure from the status quo. Last point, last part of the talk. How did they get this thing ratified in what I've already suggested was a reasonably democratic process? How do you get a country full of ordinary people to approve a form, excuse me, approve a form of government that is partly motivated by a desire to constrain the influence of ordinary people on government? First point, and this is not a point of explanation, this is just a point of emphasis, we shouldn't assume that they necessarily were going to be successful. This was a very closely fought contest, and I want to emphasize the contingency in the outcome. The framers, the Federalists, easily could have lost this battle. Two states initially rejected ratification, that's uh, Rhode Island and North Carolina. A third state, New Hampshire, very likely would have rejected ratification had their convention voted, but the Federalists in February 1788 deftly adjourned the New Hampshire convention, and then when they met again four months later, circumstances had changed so that New Hampshire ratified, but New Hampshire could easily have been a third state to reject ratification. And then in three of the five largest states, Virginia, Massachusetts, and New York, the vote on ratification was so close that it's easy to imagine it coming out the other way. So the vote in Massachusetts was 187 to 168. The vote in Virginia was 89 to 79. And the vote in New York was 30 to 27. Those are very margin, narrow margins of victory. It's also easy to imagine if one or two of the five largest states did not join the union, it would have been impossible as a practical matter to make the new union effective. All right, so how did the Federalists manage to pull this off? I'm going to start by noting several advantages they had in the process. I don't mean to say that the system was rigged, although the anti-Federalists regularly charged that. Some of these advantages were simply happenstance, and some of the advantages the Federalists shrewdly created for themselves. So I'm going to mention several of those, and then I'll end with a point about an anti-Federalist miscalculation, which I think also played a role in the outcome. And then finally, I'll make a point about how the Federalists were very shrewd in keeping intermediate options off the table, and then I'll just summarize and I'll quit and encourage questions. So what are the Federalists' advantage? First of all, in some states, and especially in South Carolina, the ratifying conventions were severely malapportioned. What that means is, at that point in American history, population was moving to the West, but legislatures often were not willing to reapportion themselves because the existing political power will generally not be altruistic and will say, I don't really want to share my power with these people in the West, even though they now have sufficient population that they deserve it. In South Carolina, 
20% of the population, 20% of the white population, which are the only ones participating in politics, live along the eastern seaboard. Those are the largest slave owners in the country. They are literally the most wealthy men in the country, and they overwhelmingly support the Constitution. Those 20% chose 60% of the delegates at the South Carolina ratifying convention. Most historians are in agreement that if you'd had a referendum in South Carolina of all white male citizens, they would have rejected ratification, but because of the severe malapportionment, the convention approved ratification by a margin of two to one. That's how severely malapportioned it was. Second, the press overwhelmingly supported ratification of the Constitution. 90 to 95% of Americans lived outside of cities in 1787-88, but newspapers, for obvious economic reasons, were published almost exclusively within cities, and the two main economic drivers of newspapers, subscribers and advertisers, were overwhelmingly supportive of ratification. What this means is many newspaper publishers would refuse to publish anti-federalist essays criticizing the Constitution. In some states, the anti-federalists were almost entirely shut out of the newspaper debate. In the words of Adonis Burke, who was a leading South Carolina anti-federalist, quote, the whole weight and influence of the press was on the side of the Constitution. There are about 90 newspapers in the country at this point in time. It's been estimated that only 12 of those 90 were willing to publish any significant amount of anti-federalist literature. Third point, several of the conventions were held in eastern cities. So, for example, the Massachusetts Convention is in Boston. It's not in Worcester or Springfield. The Pennsylvania Convention is Philadelphia. It's not in York or Lancaster. That means that the conventions are taking place in an area where the population is overwhelmingly supportive of ratification across class lines. So, for example, in New York City, where they voted for ratifying convention delegates, the Federalists won 19 out of every 20 votes. So it's not just the elite in New York City, the bankers and the financiers and the lawyers, it's the working men of the city who also are supporting the Constitution. Now this has an effect both within and outside of ratifying conventions. The ratifying conventions are open to the public, as I already suggested. This is the biggest game in town. Everybody wants to attend. In Massachusetts, in Boston, they had to relocate the convention twice in order to get the largest venue where you could have a 1,000 people. And they had people lining up in the streets in the middle of January, a 1,000 people waiting an hour in the cold weather because they wanted to witness this convention. But it's almost all Federalists. So, for example, a contemporary report in Connecticut says the Federalist crowd would stomp their feet, they would shout, they would groan, they would spit. They would basically shout down the anti-Federalists when they got up to make speeches. It also had an effect outside the convention. So in South Carolina, the Charleston planter elite would hold open houses every night while the convention was meeting. It was meeting in May 1788 for a week or two. And at those open houses, you can be sure the only opinions on the Constitution that the delegates were hearing were very supportive statements. 
Fourth, the Federalists also had an advantage simply in the relative ease with which they could organize their supporters. Support for the Constitution was strongly correlated with distance from the Atlantic Ocean. So people along the seaboard were most supportive, and as you moved to the western frontier, you got more and more opposition. And cities, to the extent we had cities, they weren't very large. Philadelphia was the largest in the country, about 30 or 40,000 people. Cities, as I've already said, were overwhelmingly in favor. What that means is the two bases of Federalist support rural areas along the coast and cities, those are the obviously the easiest places to organize in an era of very primitive transportation. It's much harder to organize people along the western frontier and in backcountry areas spread throughout the states. So if you imagine a world in which Federalists and Anti-Federalists had roughly equal numbers of supporters, and I think most historians think roughly that is the case, that the country was kind of divided down the middle, the Federalists simply had an advantage and ease of organization. Fifth point, the better sort, the quote-unquote better sort, the well-educated, well-bred, relatively affluent members of society were overwhelmingly supportive of ratification, except in Virginia where the elite was pretty much split down the middle. What this meant was, in ratifying conventions, if there were delegates who had open minds, the Federalists were going to have an obvious rhetorical advantage because they simply were better educated and had more practice giving speeches in public audiences. Backwoods farmers were really not equipped to quote Cicero in the original Latin. They, also, they often showed a form of deference to their social, what they would have regarded as their social superiors, and they were often intimidated by the superior oratorical skills of the opposition. So, for example, at the Massachusetts Ratifying Convention, where you could almost taste, in the reports of the convention, you can almost taste the hostility of the sort of farming, ordinary Massachusetts against the eastern Boston financiers, lawyers, bankers, clergymen, Amos Single who was a leading anti-federalist, complained of, quote, these lawyers and men of learning and moneyed men that talk so finely and gloss over matters so smoothly to make us poor, illiterate people swallow down the pill. Sixth and finally, in terms of federalist advantages, they were ingenious in writing Article 7 of the Constitution. Article 7 provides that for the Constitution to go into operation, nine states have to ratify, but those nine can only bind themselves. The subsequent four states are free to join the new nation or not. Now contrast that with the Articles of Confederation, where any change had to be approved unanimously by the state legislatures. A rule allowing nine states to put something into effect, but not to bind the other four states, dramatically changes the position of prospective holdouts. Under the Articles, 12 states ratified the proposal to give Congress the authority to impose import duties. The 13th state, New York, in 1786, had so much power that it actually went to Congress and tried to bargain with it over the terms of the impost. You really need our vote if you want to have these impost duties, so we're going to tell you the terms on which we'll agree to this, including things like you have to accept Massachusetts paper money, even though we're collecting gold and silver when we actually impose the tariffs. Contrast that to the Constitution. In theory, 
the four states that haven't yet ratified are free to make their own independent choice. In practice, they have little alternative but to come on board. Once the nine states have created a new system of government, the remaining four states will be denied federal military protection, they will be subjected to trade discrimination as foreign nations, and they will be cut out of any important decisions being made in the first Congress, like where to locate the permanent national capital. So in fact, what happened is once nine states ratified, the remaining four states, all of which were less inclined to ratify than the first nine, ultimately felt like they had no choice but to come on board. Federalists also benefited from anti-federalist miscalculations, especially in New York and Virginia. In New York and Virginia, the anti-federalists agreed to hold late ratifying conventions. So the Philadelphia Convention ended on September 17, 1787. The first state ratifying conventions began in November, just two months later. But in New York and Virginia, the conventions didn't meet until June of 1788. I think anti-federalists in those state legislatures went along with late conventions because they assumed that the additional time to organize would be beneficial to them. But what they ended up doing was making themselves irrelevant because by the time those conventions met, eight states had already ratified and New Hampshire was on the verge of reconvening its adjourned convention and there's a ton of newspaper correspondence. Everybody assumed New Hampshire would be the ninth state to ratify and that's exactly what happened. So New York, which clearly had an anti-federalist majority at their convention, a two-to-one majority, but by the time New York ratified in late July, 10 states had already ratified and New York simply went along, partly because they would have lost the national capital if they didn't. New York was the national capital for the last three years of the Confederacy, and obviously you couldn't remain the national capital if you were no longer part of the Union, and that would have cost New York at least $100,000 in hard currency. That's how much it was worth to have the national capital there. Okay, last important point, something that I learned while work working on the book. I was not aware of this from other secondary sources. I think the Federalists were quite brilliant at insisting that the country choose between the Articles, which most people thought were obviously flawed, and the Constitution, which many people thought was also flawed in the other direction. They prevented an intermediate choice, which I think is what many, many Americans would have been most comfortable with. The two main ways, I just, I'm turning off my alarm because I'd set it to make sure I stopped at 45 minutes and I'm gonna be very close to that. Um, so, the two ways in which you could have arrived at intermediate solutions, the two procedural mechanisms, would have been ratification conditioned on antecedent amendments. By that I mean a state ratifies, but on the condition that before the union goes into operation, there have to be amendments adopted. That's all, the alternative to that is amendments are sort of vaguely promised, but not committed to. So many anti-federalists were insisting on antecedent amendments, amendments to the Constitution agreed upon before it went into effect. And the other procedural mechanism was a second convention. Anti-federalists made good arguments for both of these alternatives. The argument for antecedent amendments was that you would have to be crazy 
Patrick Henry made this argument at the Virginia Convention. He's an anti-federalist. He'd say you would have to be a lunatic to agree to a contract with another party where that other party was free to change the terms of the agreement later on without your being able to veto that. Of course you should know what the agreement is before you sign on to it. The argument for a second convention was, well, we just had a convention that was conducted in private with a surprise agenda that nobody knew about, which adopted some reforms that nobody anticipated. We've now had a national debate on that. We've seen that a lot of people are uncomfortable with some of the proposals. Let's now elect new delegates to a second convention. They can gather the wisdom of the country and arrive at a solution that's closer to that of the median American voter. The Federalists made both legal arguments and practical political arguments against those two procedural alternatives, but the real reason they opposed those alternatives is because they knew that they had, in a sense, pulled a fast one, they'd gotten the Constitution written, and they wanted the Constitution approved. They didn't necessarily care whether it's what the average American most preferred. They thought they had drafted a constitution that would solve the country's problems, and that's what they wanted. And they knew it was very unlikely they could ever duplicate the circumstances that had enabled the Philadelphia Convention to come up with the plan that it did. So in this regard, consider a letter that Randolph wrote to Madison before the convention and Madison's reply. Randolph is the governor of Virginia. Madison is testing out his thoughts on his friends, Jefferson, Jeff, uh, Jefferson, Washington, Randolph. Madison sends his proposed ideas to Randolph, and Randolph responds by saying, this is before the convention, a month or two before the Philadelphia convention, whatever we agree to in Philadelphia, we should submit it in a form that is essentially detachable so that people can approve what they like and disapprove what they dislike. Madison was horrified by that suggestion. He did not think that the people were capable of making informed, intelligent choices on issues like what's in the federal constitution. And this is what he said to Jefferson later that year towards the end of 1787. In Virginia, where the mass of people have been so accustomed to be guided by their rulers in, on all new and intricate questions, the matter of whether to ratify the Constitution certainly surpasses the greater part of them, the judgment of the greater part of them. And another good platform to run for office on sometime. You people aren't really qualified to be voting on whether I should be your representative. All right. So in, just to sum up very quickly, the Constitution is significantly more nationalist and anti-populist than most Americans probably would have liked. The framers took advantage of the element of surprise to get it written in Philadelphia. Then they very narrowly got the country to approve it in the ratifying contest. They benefited from advantageous circumstances, some of which they created for themselves, like Article 7. They benefited from some miscalculations by their uh, opponents and some luck. They created their own luck. Whether or not you agree with what they did, whether you think it's legitimate or not, and the anti-federalists were quite adamant that this was illegitimate, I think you have to step back and admire what they accomplished, which was really kind of a coup against public opinion. Okay, so questions? Thank you.